the Sea of Galilee, perhaps the most famous body of uh, water on earth, uh, certainly a body of water with great, great biblical significance. Uh, you may have seen the boat sailing on the sea. It was labeled Faith. A number of us here were actually on that very boat. It's owned by uh, a Jewish man, ship captain, who uh, was adopted early in his life and decided um, in his youth to travel to Israel because uh, that's where he, uh, th he found out his biological mother was. And he went to Israel. He said, he said, I went there to search for my biological mother, and there I found my heavenly father. And on the Sea of Galilee, which he worked for many years, he ran into people like you and I who had a vibrant, real, authentic, personal relationship uh, with this man's own Messiah. And in his mind, just by watching and observing uh, the things I suppose we take for granted, like the access we have to the throne of grace, uh, we would pray on the Sea of Galilee and open up scripture and all the rest, uh, uh, demonstrating the presence of God and the gracious access to his throne that he gave us. And he said, I had to make a distinction in my mind between those who uh, called themselves Christians, and then he said, true born again ones. This was his vocabulary. And so he became a believer and now owns two boats. One is faith, one is hope, and he's saving up money for the third. What do you think he's going to call it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. His name is Daniel Carmel, and when we go to Israel, he leads us in worship right there on that boat on the Sea of Galilee. It's a glorious thing. Even more glorious than that is to reflect on uh, what Daniel's Messiah and ours did on the Sea of Galilee. Last week, uh, we read the astonishing event of the feeding of 5,000, which took place on the shores of this very body of water, the Sea of Galilee. And uh, now something else quite astonishing is going to happen on this same body of water, and I'd like to direct your attention to the text that tells us about it. It's in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. It says, now when evening came, so it was quite a day, thousands came to hear from this remarkable rabbi Jesus. People heard that this one was performing miracles, physical healings throughout the land. So thousands journeyed by day to have access to him. Uh, the text tells us it was 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So if you add to that number, uh, women and children, we're talking about a crowd probably in excess of 20,000 people. The day was filled with the Lord's teaching, and also the people got hungry and needed food. But there was an insufficient supply in the area, and the Lord's followers didn't have the financial wherewithal to provide a food. And so the Lord had access to a young boy's lunch, a few loaves and fish, and somehow uh, those mere 
meager portions of food in the Lord's hands were miraculously multiplied so that uh, thousands of people left with their stomachs filled. And the Lord's disciples had a role in it. They distributed the loaves and the fish in sufficient quantity for these thousands of people. Can you imagine what a spiritual high this must have been for the Lord's followers? So that's what took place in the day. But now the text says it's getting to be night. When evening came, his disciples, the Lord's disciples, they went down to the sea. That's the Sea of Galilee. They were on the east side in a mountainous area, which today we refer to as the Golan Heights. They went down from the Golan Heights, the text says, to the Sea of Galilee. And after getting into a boat, by the way, if you go to Israel, you can see a boat. In fact, it's called the Jesus Boat. It was found in the mud along the shores of the Sea of Galilee by an amateur Israeli archaeologist and his brother, a fisherman. Uh, they found it embedded in the mud uh, for over 2,000 years, and it was preserved because of the nature of the climate. And painstakingly, Israeli scientists and archaeologists removed it uh, from the mud, and now it's housed in a museum right there along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And you can get an idea of the kind of fishing boat that uh, uh, was used on the Sea of Galilee and in which the Lord and his disciples uh, traversed this body of water. So after getting into a boat, they, the Lord's followers, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum, uh, or Kfar Nahum, which means the village of Nahum. Uh, not Nahum, the prophet, whom we read about in the Bible, an unknown Nahum. This particular place was named after him, and so uh, their destination was Capernaum, if you can get this notion. They're, they're, they're rowing. Uh, north to Capernaum. And the text says it had already become dark. It's a little spooky anywhere at night, and especially on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus had not yet come to them. So they were in the boat, if you can get this picture, alone. He was not. He remained on shore, on land, and he sent them into the boat. In fact, this episode is recorded by Matthew and Mark as well. And Mark says this about what happened. Mark says, and immediately, so please note the time indicator. For whatever reason, the Lord uh, saw that it was quite important that they make haste to get in the boats. Immediately he made, he didn't suggest nor invite, he made, he mandated, he commanded his disciples uh, to get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he himself was sending the multitude away. That's the picture. All day the multitude are with this provider of food and this divine healer and the Lord's intimate followers are in on all this. Can you imagine the drama and excitement of it all? They'd not seen anything like this before. And being human, uh, 
being identified with the miracle worker must have done something really substantial for their ego. Oh, the healer, you're waiting online to get to the healer. We know him. <laughs> we travel with him. He's our uh, rabbi. We are his followers. They're getting pretty puffed up, I would imagine, by this. And yet the Lord tells them immediately, leave this exciting venue and get into a boat. Now, I'm just imagining if I was there and I have the same perspective they did, and they're no different than us, I would be thinking, maybe you would too, why, Lord? Why are you making us leave at a time such as this? This is, I mean, we want to stick around. This is a peaked spiritual experience. This is not the time to leave the crowd. The crowd loves you, and by extension, us. We can't go now. In fact, they're probably thinking, we perceive that the crowd wants you to be their king. In fact, we read last week in John 6, verse 15, that's exactly what they wanted. The Lord himself perceived that the crowd who just had their stomachs filled wanted to come and by force make him king. And he did not want this to happen. Now, I'm sure they didn't get it. They're perplexed. They're wondering, why would you run from such an opportunity? They want to place the crown upon you. But the Lord didn't come to be their kind of king. They were looking for a king who would meet their physical needs as he had so gloriously on this occasion. They were looking for a kind of a political savior who would liberate them from Roman oppression. Uh, but King Jesus came to set them free, not from Rome, but from sin. And that's not the kind of king they were looking for. And he refused to let an enthusiastic yet crazed mob determine the time in which he would come into his kingship. His father would determine that time. And the crowd wanted to place upon him the crown without the cross. And he wouldn't have it. Uh, for he came to be impaled on the cross for one such as you and I. And if the Lord succumbed to the temptation of popularity, and that's a temptation, if he did, and bypassed the cross, took the crown but refused the cross, I ask you, where would people like you and I be today? Where would be our hope of atonement and forgiveness and redemption and pardon, where would our hope be? But the Lord wouldn't have it. He came first as sacrificial lamb. Oh, he'll come the next time as lion of Judah. But first he came for the cross, later for the crown. Anyway, uh, the Lord perceived that though he had his priorities right, his disciples were in growth mode. They, they were not immediately mature in the faith. They had to grow just like you and I, and they would succumb perhaps to this wave of popularity. And so though the Lord knew to, uh, of the dangers of the waves at sea, which they are about to face, he perceived, I think, that it was more dangerous for them to face the waves of popularity. They would have succumbed to it. So he says, that is, is recorded, Immediately, he sent them into the boat, though he knew he was sending them into the midst 
of a storm. And so the text continues in verse 18. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. I was on the Sea of Galilee one time, and in a matter of minutes, this kind of thing happened. It was calm, and then it became turbulent. Wind blows, and it gets sort of caught in this uh, uh, basin, and it swirls around, and it can create conditions on a lake. It's actually not a sea. It's a freshwater lake. It's only called the Sea of Galilee because the conditions on it can come to resemble those as if you were out at sea. And that's what's happening here. The wind is stirring up the waters on the Sea of Galilee. Remember, it's evening. It's dark. The waters are not calm. They're turbulent. The Lord's disciples were being, as the text says, stirred up by a strong wind. Matthew, in his account, tells us that the boat was being battered by the waves. I've seen these wooden sailing ships, and uh, they could be tossed and turned uh, in a treacherous way on the Sea of Galilee, and that's kind of what's happening here. Now Jesus, the Jesus you and I are called upon to trust, he sent his followers into the sea in the midst of a storm. That's a rough one to figure out. This Jesus, who we are to be confident about and feel safe with, he's the very one who with immediacy mandated that they get out onto the Sea of Galilee to be in the midst of a storm. He, He made them do this while he remained alone on the shore. He made his followers, they were his intimate few, he made his followers get in the boat and go out to the sea under these conditions. Well, it's not that new. I mean, they had been in a storm on the Sea of Galilee with Jesus once before. You could read about this if you care to in Mark chapter four. However, that situation was different than this one. In that situation, though there was a storm on the same body of water, the difference is that Jesus was in the boat with them. This is different. Now they're on their own. Where is he who invited them to lean on him? There's nobody to lean on now. They're left with their own resources. They are entirely alone on the Sea of Galilee, and they are without him, and they can't see him, and they have no reason to believe in nor sense his presence, and they believe now they must fend for themselves, and boy, they're like us, for crying out loud. Uh, Here is this Jesus who was imparting his life and heart and soon literally his life and yet in the midst of this particular storm they were quickly persuaded they have to deal with it without him. We're like that. So the storm distracted them from their savior just as the storms of life are prone to do with us. But were they really alone. They felt it. I'm not denying that. But were they in actuality alone? Are we 
even in the midst of the storms of life, really alone in it. We feel it, I got it, but are we right? Well, Mark, in chapter 6, verse 48, uh, utters three words for us that are so meaningful. Uh, Mark records, and seeing them. Ah, They lost sight of their Lord because the storm was terrifying and distracting, but he never lost sight of them. Can you see the application here? This happens to us. You or someone you love gets a cancer diagnosis. You didn't see it coming. You can't anticipate this. It's an unforeseen storm. And it's overwhelming. And you're visiting doctors and getting more than one opinion. And you're considering options. And the whole thing is so confusing. And there's insurance and this and and. You're terrified, understandably so. And you're feeling absolutely alone in this and that you have to fend for yourself. You have to navigate these turbulent waters alone. And I would feel that way and you feel that way, but our feelings are not based on the facts. The Lord has not sent us out to sea without his presence. He has not abandoned us. Our storms can distract us just as much from the presence of the Savior. They were not alone, nor were they abandoned. He, the Lord, saw them from afar. He did not lose sight of them. All along, his eyes were upon them. His gaze was upon them, even from a distance. He saw them. How could he? Well, he's God, you see. And so his eye was constantly Upon them in distance and turbulent weather couldn't interfere with that. Well, they felt abandoned, yet were not. He was not physically present with them. They could not see him, and as a result, they imagined he did not see them. We're prone to make that error. I don't sense your presence, Lord. This is overwhelming to me, this which is befalling me, this storm, this unanticipated thing, which is rattling me to the core of my being, which is something I've never had to navigate before, is so consuming and overwhelming. No, I don't have a real sense of your presence. And can I tell you, you're permitted. You have a right to your emotion. But uh, let's preach to each other the facts Though we may not have a sense of the presence of the Lord, it doesn't mean he isn't present with us. Though we may have lost sight of him, it doesn't mean for one moment he ever loses sight of us. And so in the storm and in their imagined aloneness, they were frightened, very frightened. They lost sight of him, though all along he never lost sight of them. And verse 19 tells us, then when they had rowed about three or four miles. Hmm. It's not much. But under these conditions, it would have taken them about seven or eight hours. Seven or eight hours in the middle of the night on a turbulent sea. Uh, They've only advanced three or four miles. They're not making much progress. They're straining at the oars. 
And it's such a contrast with what happened during the day. It was a spiritual high just a few hours ago. They'd never seen anything like they did, the miraculous feeding of thousands of people, and they were permitted the privilege of having a role in it all. It was a hands-on experience for them, a peak spiritual experience, and now, well, now this. Now they're straining at the oars, and the winds are fiercely against them, and they are in the midst of a full-blown storm, and Folks, I would like to suggest um, that this is the normal Christian life. I don't like it, nor do you, but I suppose we should be honest. We're getting a glimpse. This is a portrait of the normal Christian life. It consists of peaked spiritual experiences, oftentimes suddenly followed by really rough waters. Uh, uh, the, the, the Christian life is like this, peaks and valleys. And then after the valley, uh, uh, there is a time of refreshment. And yet after the time of refreshment, oh my goodness, turbulent waters again. It is the ebb and flow of the normal Christian life. It consists of peaks and valleys and both are typical and both are necessary. And so these followers of the Lord are now in a valley. And they are miserable. And they are miserable, this is interesting. They are miserable not because they had sinned. When you have sinned, when I have sinned, if you're a believer, I'm a believer, we don't sin with much pleasure. It's only temporary and for a season. Because the option now of sinning without uh, consequences is no longer ours as believers. Because God has implanted his very presence and spirit in our life. And his spirit makes us miserable when we sin. He messes us up. That's the difference, you see. Sin is not what it used to be. And so you've had the experience upon your sin, as have I, of experiencing misery, guilt and shame and all the rest. But that doesn't account for their misery. They're not in the midst of the storm because of their disobedience. It's the opposite. Can you get this? This is weird to me. They're in the midst of the storm because of their obedience. Listen to me. All they had to do is say no to Jesus. And they could have found their way in dry clothes, a warm bed, and with a hot meal. They could have just said immediately into the boat in the storm. They could have said, no way. We're not going to do it. And then you and I would understand, oh, there are consequences for sinning, for disobeying the Lord. But that wasn't the case here. Their misery was not due to their disobedience. Uh, Their misery was due to the opposite, to their obedience. You know what their obedience got them? It got them into the midst of a frightening storm. I don't like that. But that seems to be part of the normal Christian life. They did not disobey. They obeyed. And look where it got them. It got them into a storm at sea. They're obedient, yet they are struggling. Now, if you watch certain so-called Christian TV and listen to certain so-called Christian messages... 
what's happening to them, uh, you're going to be told, ought not be the case. Because if you just do things rightly before God, you will have smooth sailing. Health. Wealth. But once again, as I read this text, I'm finding out that's false teaching. They obeyed the Lord. And as a result, they're in the midst of of the storm. How how could this be? Folks, we have to accept this. God's will, even for his obedient kids, oftentimes is the way of the storm. We just have to accept this. I, I, I don't like that. And you don't, but it's the normal Christian life. We have to accept the reality that it is oftentimes God's will, even for his obedient sons and daughters, to be in the midst of one of the storms of life. Why, though? If God is good. If God is good. Why the storm? I think it's for this reason. If God really is good, he will give us what we need, and he's so good, he's willing to withhold what we want. If he's really good, he'll give us what we need. But not necessarily in terms of this short span of time here on earth. If he's really good, he'll give us his best in terms of eternity. And sometimes it's for us to row right out into the midst of the storms of life. Why? Because sometimes adversity it can more effectively produce in us what's good for us than prosperity. For instance, you and I have a malady. We don't have to learn it. It seems to come from birth. It's this appetite to be self-sufficient, self-reliant, autonomous and independent from God. You see this reflected in what's taught even to our children in school systems and by naive parents. We drum into the minds of our impressionable young people things like this. You can be anything you want to be. That's not true. That's a lie. The will to be a, a, have a certain job, a certain position, accomplish a certain goal, the will is not enough. There are circumstances so beyond the control of human will, all kinds of things can interfere with it. I never forget, I watch the Olympics track and field. I love it. And these premier athletes train for years and years, maybe for one event, maybe the 100-yard dash. World-class athletes. And all it takes is one or two false starts. That's it. Or a pulled hamstring muscle. That's it. Would we dare question the will of that athlete? You know, uh, I used to watch the beauty pageants. I, I don't anymore. 
but I used to watch them. And here you have the most graceful, coordinated women in the history of humankind. And it's amazing to me how many of them stumble and fall. Human will is not enough to make us all we want to be. I grew up in the streets of New York and we played basketball. That's all we did when we were not stealing hubcaps. We, we played basketball. My ambition was to be, have your fun, my ambition was to be a professional basketball player. That's what I wanted to be. Go ahead, go ahead. Doesn't hurt my feelings that you're laughing. I willed to be it. <laughs> I didn't make it, I'm just a pastor. The will is not enough. When we tell our kids, you can be anything you want to be, it's a lie. And what we are doing, we're putting a curse on them because we're telling them, believe in yourself. We're actually saying that. Believe in yourself. <gasps> well, our kids learn that lesson really, really well. And when they find out that belief in their, themselves is not sufficient for them to have victory in life because we've never invited them to seek the outside help of their creator, they have no place to go except down. This is an inherent human malady, and we, we play right into it, this appetite to be self-sufficient, pridefully, uh, self-reliant, and all along a loving God is exposing us to the storms of life to persuade us not to be self-sufficient, but to depend on the Savior. Prosperity won't do it. Adversity will do it, and that's what's happening here. They're out on this boat. It's nighttime. The waves are about to overflow the boat. They don't know if they're going to make it safely to shore. And a good and loving God could have arrived on the scene much earlier than you'll see he did. Why did he wait so long? Because he waited until the storm produced in them what a good and loving God wanted it to produce. And that was uh, the Persuasion that they were at the end of their resources. They could not get safely to shore. They could not save themselves. All hint of self-sufficiency and self-adequacy uh, was thrown out during the hours in which they were at sea. They couldn't get to their destination. They didn't know if they would survive it all. And when in the Lord's omniscience, he realized now that they were at the end of foolish self-reliance. Then the text in Mark chapter 6 verse 48 tells us he came to them walking on the sea and he intended to pass them by. He came to them at the very right time. He didn't swim to them. He was walking on the sea. The wind and the waves, the forces of nature, which terrified and impacted on them, did not have the same impact on him because he, though he looked like them, was not them. He was only in their form, but he had the essential nature of deity. And he had resources at his disposal. They did not have while all along they're making a vain attempt at self-sufficiency, here comes the Savior, who even the forces of nature must bow to. 
And so the text in Mark tells us he intended to pass them by. What? He came to them, but he was fully prepared to walk right by. What he was about to do was contingent on them inviting him into their boat. Almighty God who could walk on water. He who even the wind and waves submit to would not impose himself on them. He was fully prepared to walk right on by if they refused to cry out to him for help and say, Lord Jesus, come into our boat. They were frightened. So says verse 19 in our text, John 6. They were frightened. Why? <laughs> because they didn't expect to see him. That's why. They were entirely surprised by his visitation. Why? Why are we? It's because in the storm we doubt that the Lord who was willing to pay the ultimate price for us is really not that interested in us. He may have saved us from sin. Yeah, that's good. But he's not going to save us. He's not going to be with us during the storms of life. No. So they were surprised <laughs> that he showed up. And yet the Bible says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? If he gave us the ultimate, his very life, won't he help us get through the storms of our lives? It's just common sense. But they didn't get it yet, so they were quite frightened at his presence. Isn't it ironic that the storms of life can so easily distract us from the very giver of our new life? And so he said to them in verse 20, it is I. Do not be afraid. Do you know that is the most frequently occurring commandment in all of the Bible? Do not be afraid. That should tell us what we're prone to do. <laughs> Be afraid. It, it, and the Lord commanded them against it. In fact, in fact, if you can imagine the dialogue, I think something like this maybe uh, is what's meant here. Imagine the Lord saying to them, what are you doing right now? They respond, we are being afraid. The Lord says, well, stop doing what you are now doing. They say, how? And the Lord responds, it is I. Stop being afraid. I am with you in the storm. Stop what you are doing. Stop being afraid. And so they were willing it says in verse 21, to receive him into their boat. And immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. I was uh, in England a long time ago, and uh, I uh, 
I was working with American military uh, people in England. And I was asked to dog sit for uh, British friends on one weekend. They said, you can stay at our home, just watch our dog. Okay. So I decided to take this British mongrel on a walk one day from its home into the uh, main part of this small village and back. And so the dog, as dogs are prone to do, got real excited when I went for its leash. And I connected it to its collar, grabbed onto it. I'm mean, pulling at the door, pulling at the door. I get the door open, and I, I thought for sure the dog will now calm down. We're outside. We'll have a nice walk. Man, this beast was just dragging me. I mean, it took about 45 minutes, and it was just uh, gasping for air and salivating and all this. And I tried to reason with the dog. I tried to, to persuade the dog how stupid it was because the dog was, was pulling me at great personal cost uh, to the very place I intended to bring it. And then I realized, oh, good night. We're just like the dog. God has told us the score. I'll never leave you or forsake you. He has told us whether it be through the storm or around the storm or in spite of the storm, he has promised to get us to the other side. That's what he said. And man, we are pulling at the leash and we are in worry and fear and fright and unbelief and distraction. We're knocking ourselves out to get to the very place where as soon as we invite Jesus in the boat, we find out he with immediacy can get us to without all this struggle and anxiety and anguish as if, as if we're abandoned. But the key is they had to invite him into their boat. Uh, Jesus is a lot of things, not the least of which is that he's God willing to get into our boat. But he has to be invited. Uh, I uh, suspect there are some here tonight who are in a storm. You're, you're redeemed. You know the Lord Jesus, as did they, as your Savior. You're, you, you, you're just not certain he's your sustainer. And you're really just not certain he understands what you're going through. And, and, and let's face it, you really doubt he knows what he's doing. And you, and you may even think you're in the situation you're in because you have disappointed him or something. I hope you and I can learn from this episode. Uh, uh, sometimes uh, uh, the reward of obedience... <laughs> is that the Lord will lead us into a storm through which he can produce in us a kind of self-emptying that obligates us to cling to him for blessing. Oh, Lord Jesus, come into my boat. Be with me during this storm of life, and I will not let you go until you get me to the other side. And I think the Lord Jesus delights in that. I wish you would exercise only his omnipotence 
and force himself into our boat. But that's not who he is. He invites us to invite him into our boat. I hope in the storm of your life, and if it happens to me, I hope you give me the same message because I'm going to be just like them, caught up with emotion and fear, and I need you to remind me. Jesus stands ready to come into your boat in this storm. Cling to him for blessing. We need each other for those, for those reminders. So I... I, I hope you put yourself in the story and maybe hear the Lord saying to you, what are you doing right now? Maybe, maybe you are honest and say, I am being afraid. I am being overwhelmed and frightened. Maybe you could hear him saying lovingly to you, well, stop doing that. And then maybe you honestly and authentically respond, that's easy for you to say, how am I supposed to do that? And then maybe you can hear him say specifically to you, it is I. You are not alone. Stop being afraid. I am with you in this storm. I will get you to the other side. Invite me into your boat with more immediacy and passion and conviction than ever before. Otherwise... I'm prepared to pass you by. Don't let it happen. Lord Jesus, what a grand opportunity you've given us essentially to do life together. And how dare we think we can do life without you, the giver of life. Perish the thought that we would try to be strong, be self-sufficient, be independent. No, we would rather declare our dependence on you. And we admit sometimes we need to be emptied of personal confidence and resources in the midst of a storm before we're ready to invite you into our boat, all sufficient one. Thank you for your stated interest in us and desire to get us to the other side. We yearn for that day, and until that comes, please remind us that though at times we're prone to lose sight of you, even from a distance, your gaze is upon us. You have saved us from sin, and for this we are eternally grateful, but you've also saved us from fear and hopelessness and aloneness and self-sufficiency. And you invite us to cling to you for blessing. This we do. This we're glad to do. This we do in Jesus' name. Amen.